Well, we'll be in Psalm 103 this morning. So if you're, uh, if you're new to reading the Bible, that's right about halfway in the middle of the Bible. Just turn back to the left a little bit. It's right there. We, uh, we have before us a beautiful psalm, uh, one that's been over the centuries loved and cherished by the Christian church and quoted often. It's full of, uh, full of God's beauty, full of, full of goodness. In fact, um, just to pull back the curtain a little bit, uh, Tom's been complaining all week long that he and Luke have had doom, gloom, and depression for the past few weeks. And, uh, and today we, we get to uh, move to the goodness, and, and I'm up here, so I'm thankful for that. But also, but also feel like um, I, I've, I've had this, I was telling Stacy last night, I've felt this weight about this psalm that, that is so great, so beautiful, that um, you know, we can't do justice to it. It's like putting a three-by-five photo before you of the Rocky Mountains. It just, it just can't do the thing justice. And so um, knowing that that's the case, I want to pray and, and begin there this morning. Lord, we're thankful for your kindness to us. We're thankful that you've given us Christ, that you've revealed the greatness of your goodness to us in Christ, and that by your Spirit you've opened our eyes to behold him as glorious. We pray that this morning through this psalm you would speak, O Lord, and fulfill in us all of your purposes for your glory. We'll give thanks for that in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we're very experienced at listening to ourselves, aren't we? You might remember that Tom mentioned a couple weeks ago uh, what Henry David Thoreau said, that the mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation, existing, not living, mentally dead while still alive. Well, that quote serves as the opening line by, uh, in a book by Dwight Nichols entitled, Listening to Ourselves, the Key to Everything that Matters. Well, in his book, Dwight explains that every shortcoming in your life results from a failure to listen to yourself accurately. He says that for discovering the truth, quote, that will set us free, we need to retreat within ourselves and listen to get an intuitive knowing. But we didn't need Dwight to lead us astray on that one. We naturally listen to ourselves, don't we? Think about it for a minute. Whose voice has been the most compelling for you this week? Whose emotions have you given the most attention to? Whose cravings are the most important to you? Well, as we've entered this series on the Psalms entitled The Cry of the Soul, we're, we're acknowledging that there is indeed an, an internal voice that speaks, and we hear that voice in all of its intricacies every day. In the past several Psalms, Psalm 13, 130, 42 and 43, have expressed those cries of the soul in varying shades of darkness. But at the end of every psalm, the, the psalmist speaks back. For instance, at the end of Psalm 43, which we studied last week, it's, Why are you cast down, O my soul? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. You know, the soul speaks in darkness, and then the psalmist speaks back with truth. Well, it's not, like Luke said, it's, it's not like a schizophrenia, you know, the, the innocent half of the brain trying to convince the, the bad half of the brain of sweet things. You know, we, we have no innocent half. It's not the self listening to the self. This is the psalmist speaking external truth into his own soul. And he is skilled in this art. 
was we come to Psalm 103 this morning. We, we leave behind the darkness and we find ourselves in a, in a field of God's glory. And, and it's like David standing in the, the middle of this field just looking around him, all the glory, the beauty of God. And, and his soul cries out, this time not in desperation, but in delight. So if you look at your Bible, in Psalm 103, you see there verses 1 through 5, David is calling on his own soul to rise up and, and bless the Lord for all of his benefits. And then in verses 6 through 19, it's as if he turns to the congregation and he invites the whole congregation to join him in this meditation of praise. And then he concludes in verses 20 through 22 by invoking all of creation to participate in this, this heartfelt response to God's gracious character. So with that in mind, let's read the psalm together, beginning in verse 1. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him, for he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He, he flourishes like a flower of the field. The wind passes over it and it is gone and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you as angels, you, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Well, the teaching today will follow the three basic pieces of the psalm. First, David calls on his own soul to bless the Lord for his benefits. Second, he invites the congregation to consider the character of God. And third, he summons all of creation to rejoice in God's gracious rule. So, first of all, we have... David rejoicing in his own soul over the goodness of God. He takes this truth that he has received about God, and he engages his mind with considering this truth. And the emotion, the response of his own soul to the truth under consideration here is he says, bless the Lord. 
Well, what does it mean to bless? You know, we don't do a lot of blessing in our culture. What does that mean? Well, to bless the Lord means to give a heartfelt articulation to the greatness and the goodness of God. It's, it's something that arises from the heart and speaks out rather at e- either verbally or just in the heart and articulation to the greatness and, and the goodness of God. And that's what's happening here when David says in verse to forget not all of his benefits. You know, he blesses the Lord because he remembers the benefits of the Lord. He speaks good things about God because he knows of God's goodness. In the same way, failure to bless the Lord results from failure to remember his benefits. Well, notice that these benefits that David addresses here are are related to the soul and and not to the sunshine outside or or the body. In verses 3 through 5, these benefits, you know, they're not, they're not tangible things. They're not things you can hold in your hands. These are soul benefits. That is, they, they speak to spiritual, not physical grace. Look at them. In, iniquity has been dealt with by forgiveness. Eternal destiny has been changed through redemption. David tells his, his soul that its diseases have been healed. He's not talking about his body or his house. He's talking about these soul benefits. His, his soul has been rescued and its diseases have been healed. So look, look again at this list uh, of, of benefits. It forgives your iniquities, heals your diseases, redeems your life from the pit. And then he kind of turns a little bit, crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, satisfies you with good. So in the first half of those benefits, David focuses on on what he's been spared or rescued from. But God's goodness is only at its beginning when he rescues. What what follows is even more fantastic, that he would take those lowly pit dwellers and, and that he would exalt them to a place where he even crowns them with his richest jewels, his steadfast love and his mercy. And that he would satisfy them with good. And what would you give to be satisfied? Remember that satisfaction never comes by surveying your circumstances. You know, if, if they're not good, if you're unhappy with life, you'll be disappointed. And if they're great, then you'll be distracted from true satisfaction. And Tom said to me earlier this week, you know, if things are a mess, God is still good. And if things seem perfect, God is still better. This is where we too often go astray, that, that we tend to interpret our circumstances through, that we, or sorry, we, we interpret God through the lens of our circumstances rather than interpreting our circumstances through the lens of God's faithfulness and kindness. We, we should be interpreting the things that go on around us and, and seeking satisfaction from God and, and his goodness letting our minds settle on the benefits of his goodness towards us. So to integrate the psalmist's perspective here into the fabric of our own lives, we need to be people who are personally meditating on the benefits of God towards us. We need to talk to our own soul about his goodness, reminding ourselves that when things are a mess, God is good, and when things seem perfect, God is still better. So consider, what are you thinking about God right now? What have you been thinking about him today or this past week? Especially when we suffer, we can be tempted to think that God is not loving towards us, that God doesn't have good intentions towards me. Or we may uh, not give credit to God at all, as if 
He has absolutely nothing to do with our circumstances, as if perhaps he's overlooked or neglected us. We must call on our own souls to, to rise up. We must call on our souls, as David does here, to find delight in God, bringing to mind promises like Lamentations 3, but this I call to mind. Therefore, I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. And we must consider Jesus. You know, it's, it's through Christ that this psalm comes alive in vivid color. What, what we know now on this side of the cross that David only had kind of in black and white as he considers the grace of God is that the healing, the redeeming, the crowning, the satisfying that he talks about here all come to us through Christ. We receive the love of the Father through him, through his work on the cross, his substitutionary kind of death in our place, receiving the punishment that we deserve. It's why Hebrews reminds us over and over again, consider Jesus. Well, we can't meditate long on the benefits of God towards us personally before that kind of praise, that kind of bless the Lord, O oh my soul, just wells up and overflows into praise in the midst of the congregation or in relationships with others. And, and that's what happens in David's case here. You know, he, he kind of turns to the congregation there in verse 6 and, and, and begins to address them with these benefits, with the character of God. Actually, many of the psalms are addressed to the congregation as if the writer intends to preach to the congregation through the psalm. And by the way, that's, that's what all good singing in the church should do. It should be us preaching truth about the goodness of God to each other through the lines of the hymn. That's why it's so appropriate sometimes when we're in church together singing just to stop and listen to the voices around you. And just to kind of soak in and be served by the faith of others as they preach truth about God in song to one another. Well, that's what the hymn writer is doing here. He, he turns from personal meditation to corporate meditation. This is our second point, that David calls on the congregation to consider the character of God. We see this in verses 6 through 19. Well, the center of this psalm's theology is really verse 8 where David reminds the congregation there in verse 8, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That is God's own description of himself, compressed just into a few brief words. These words are not original to David. They actually come from much earlier in the Bible, in Exodus 34. At that point, Israel was at, at the base of Mount Sinai, waiting for Moses to come back down. It had been a while, not long, really, about a month, but the people lacked patience. And since Moses hadn't come back yet with the word from God, who wasn't working on their timetable, they made their own God to worship, a golden calf. This God, they thought, would serve them when they wanted it to. Well, no man can serve two gods, and so God has Moses ask the people the question, who is on the Lord's side? giving them yet another chance to re-pledge their allegiance to God. You know, they were impatient with God, but God was exceedingly patient towards them. 
still, despite God's patience and goodness towards them on that day, 3,000 people chose to, to dedicate, to commit their, their allegiance and their lives to that worthless statue of a cow. And, and because they committed their lives to that statue, God wiped them out. Well, at this point in the story, Moses, frustrated with the people, disappointed, goes back up in the mountain and he, and he prays to God in desperation, please show me your glory. And God answers his request. God showed up in the mountain that day and declared something about himself that true Israelites would never forget. In Exodus 34, it says, The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with Moses there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head to the earth and worshipped. You know, God's own description of himself there in Exodus 34 helped to shape Israel's understanding of him. It was really a crisis point in Israel's history. And just like a crisis point in your own life or your own marriage, uh, really is kind of identity shaping. It helps you clarify, define yourself. So Israel at this point is, is, is at a crisis point here. And what God reveals about his own identity in this moment becomes the foundation for the way that Israel and the church would always think and speak about God. And that's why, that's why in verse 7 of Psalm 103, it says that he made known his ways to Moses and his acts to the children of Israel. You know, it's looking back to this moment, this time when God revealed himself in this way. And these are massive verses in the Bible. This statement about God being gracious and merciful, slow to anger and steadfast love. It's repeated over and over again in the Old Testament, almost 30 times altogether. And Psalm 103 is one of the best commentaries in Scripture on this statement. So if you think of Psalm 103, verse 8, as the center of this psalm's theology, and then we see that what follows in verses 9 through 19 is really helping us to, to picture and assimilate these truths about God into our minds. So in verse 8, we have this massive kind of foundational statement about God's character followed by an extended meditation on the meaning of that statement. So this is where we want to land and just kind of break this statement, verse 8, apart into three pieces. Number one, God is merciful and gracious. God is merciful. Mercy, that is God's goodness toward those who are in misery and distress. It's the same word actually used in verse 13, where it says that the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him, for he knows our frame. He remembers that we're dust. And and the metaphor that the psalmist gives us to describe the, the mercy or the compassion of God is that God makes himself our father. That's a picture for us to understand that word. In other words, the word mercy in verse 8 is now being described in verse 13 where it says, as a father shows compassion to his children. So the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. That's a beautiful picture to think of God as our father and and the love that he is towards us in that. 
But the beauty of God as our Father is only compounded by our original lineage. You know, Ephesians 2 says that we were born by nature as children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So the fact that God is seen here as our Father must mean that God made himself our Father. Consider Psalm 68 says that that God is the Father of the fatherless. And he takes the solitary and he sets them in a home. God has, has adopted us. And, and it's this adoption of us by God that affirms his mercy. That he is good to those who are in misery and distress. Notice what it is that elicits this kind of mercy and compassion. Verse 14. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. When's the last time you felt like that? You felt like dust. Maybe you felt crushed by your repeated sin, your inability to get things right, or just your absolute exhaustion at trying to achieve. He knows your frame. He knows your dust. And it's in the moments that, when, that you most feel that, that his compassion is most rich because he is merciful. Well, coupled with that mercy, it says that God is gracious, referring to his goodness towards those who deserve only punishment. So if if mercy is his goodness towards those in misery and distress, grace is his goodness towards those who deserve only punishment. Forgiveness instead of punishment is the prime expression of God's compassion towards a needy humanity. We need his grace, his forgiveness, because we deserve punishment. That's why David says in verse 10 that he has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor repaid us according to our iniquities. You know, if, if you could kind of gather up all of the bad things that have happened to you and 10 other people in your lives and just kind of bring it all together, gather it up like you'd gather the luggage off the carousel at the airport, just bring it all together, put it all in a heap on your back, and that was your lot to bear in life, you wouldn't even be scratching the surface of God's just punishment against your sin. And yet we find here that he is gracious and forgiving in response to the punishment that we deserve. Well, one other note about these attributes. All of these attributes of God's character given to us here in verse 8 are what we call communicable attributes. That is, they can be passed along to us, communicated to us. In other words, we can reflect them in the way that we live, as opposed to incommunicable attributes, which are the ones that he alone possesses, you know, like omnipotence. He is all-powerful, and he doesn't share that one with us. But these, we get to reflect. So when we think about God's grace and his mercy, we should consider, are we reflecting these in the way that we live? As you consider his compassion towards those in distress, consider what opportunities might he be leading you to to reflect his compassion? The group of people in this room should be among the most ready people in all the world to help those who are in need. And we should also be among the most thoughtful people in all the world about how to best do that. You know, God spared no tears on our misery. He thoughtfully and carefully planned for the sacrifice of his own son in our place. We likewise should be thoughtfully, carefully planning about how we can sacrifice for the good of those who are in misery and distress. And what of his grace? How have you been reflecting his graciousness 
His grace that forgives where punishment is due. Where have you been withholding forgiveness as if you're the judge of all the earth? Well, because God is merciful and gracious, we should thank him. We should also imitate him. Number two, God is slow to anger. So verse 8 says he's merciful and gracious, slow to anger. That is, he withholds punishment from those who continue to sin over a long period of time. Charles Spurgeon said he lingers long with loving pauses, tearing by the way to give space for repentance and opportunity for accepting his mercy. Thus he deals with the greatest sinners and with his own children much more so. God is patient. Even when we capitulate to the same temptations over and over again, can you count your sins? How many have there been? You know, perhaps you can think of some category of sin that you commit or omit over and over again. How many times have you done that? And even if you could count them all up, can all sin really be counted? I mean, can you really count hatred or indifference towards the need of others? Can you really tally up lovelessness towards your own family members? You see, sometimes I think we fall into viewing ourselves primarily as victims of our brokenness rather than as perpetrators of it. We have greater distress over the punishment that we incur upon ourselves than we do over our flagrant disregard for God. We're more concerned about ourselves than we are about God. And because of this, we fail to appreciate the patience of God. I mean, how long has he withstood the blows that you've laid upon him? How long has he put off his anger despite your repeated sin? Let me make myself clear here. For the psalmist, the point is not to heap up guilt over repeated sin. The point is that God is patient with us. He is slow to anger. You know, perpetual sin is a twisted normality of human experience, even Christian experience. And and that's very disheartening. But the grace that we have here is that one of the benefits of God towards his children is that he is slow to anger. If you're a Christian, then you should just be sitting here mentally soaked in the grace of Jesus Christ right now. Because part of God's slowness to anger is that he has poured out his anger on Christ rather than on us. But even as you do that, even as you soak your mind in the grace of Jesus, consider again, how are you reflecting this attribute of God? We also should be slow to anger. That's why James says in the New Testament, let every person be quick to hear Slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteous life that God requires. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian, then consider this. The the Bible teaches that every time we sin, God would be justified to separate us from himself eternally. We've opposed God in our sin. It would be just for him to oppose us eternally. And because God is the source of all good things, then separation from God for eternity would mean a separation from anything good for eternity. But his patience, that he is slow to anger, 
is good news for you. In fact, the New Testament says that we should consider the patience of God as salvation. In other words, because he is patient, you have time to seek forgiveness of sin and to to hope in Christ. Well, if that interests you, then, then you should talk to me or to someone else here today about that. God is slow to anger. So first of all, he is merciful and gracious. Second, he's slow to anger. And number three, God is abounding in steadfast love. Steadfast love, well, that's a loaded term in the Old Testament. Tom talked about it a couple weeks ago. Luke brought it up again last week. It's a single word in Hebrew, chesed, that refers to God's covenant-keeping love. You know, God makes covenants and God keeps covenants. He makes promises to men in the Old Testament, and he keeps those promises to men. God, of his own free will and pleasure, binds himself to his children so that he can by no means forsake them. He can no more turn his back on his children than he can cease to be God. It's just impossible. That's why, as Tom explained, when when God made a covenant with Abraham, he he walked, as it were, between the the torn and, and separated carcasses of dead animals as if to say, if I were to forsake this covenant, let this happen to me. Let me be destroyed. You know, the point is that it can't happen. He cannot forsake his own. And said, this covenant-keeping love is the core of God's character that, that arises out of that kind of faithfulness, that kind of commitment to keeping his promises. Verses 15 through 19 of Psalm 103 speak of this steadfast love. And the picture given to us is one of contrast. You know, humans are unlike God. We're like the lawn out front. The grass gets mowed every week, and before the blades of grass even reach the end of the driveway, we, we forget about it. The wind blows them away. You know, everyone oohs and ahs at your flowers one day, and the next day they, they fall and soak into the ground, and no one ever remembers them again. Humans are like that. Humanity fades quickly, but not God. Verse 17 says, That his steadfast love is from everlasting to everlasting for those who fear him. You know, this steadfast love, this faithfulness, is at the core of God's character. It's, It's kind of the central hub from which these other beauties flow, these other attributes, grace, mercy, patience. They all arise out of this kind of covenant, faithful kind of love. And and the benefits that David spoke to in verses 3 through 5, again, those flow out of God's character. His benefits and his attributes flow out of this, this kind of core of his character, that he is faithful and he is lovingly faithful. So David rehearses what Israel already knows. And he calls them to meditate on what they already know. That God is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. Well, we'll conclude with the conclusion of this psalm. David has called on his own soul to bless the Lord for all these benefits. He's called on the congregation to consider the character of God. But the Lord's greatness cannot be contained. And so now at the end of the psalm, he calls on all of creation to rejoice in the rule of God. 
this cosmic summons for all God's works to bless him. There in verses 20 through 22. Bless the Lord, you his angels, you mighty ones. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers. Bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. And the reason that David gives us for summoning everything to rejoice in the rule of God is that God's throne in verse 19 has been established in the heaven and his kingdom rules over all. So our hope this morning is rooted in the conviction that God's steadfast love permeates his rule, yes, but also that his rule extends to every element of creation. Every minute aspect of this world he created is overseen and directed by his steadfast love, meaning for us that there is not a single experience or place that we could enter into apart from his goodness, apart from his overwhelming grace towards us. You know, whatever it is that you experience today, you have as much reason as any part of creation to join in this anthem, this, this song of unending praise to the sovereign and steadfast love of God. As we read this psalm, you should speak these things to your soul this morning and delight in this God who has made himself your father. Well, I'll pray for us now, and then you'll have an opportunity to respond to the joy of this psalm and prayer as well. When you do, please speak briefly and loudly so that others may pray. Lord, we, we are grateful for your goodness to us. We are recipients of these kinds of benefits. We were people who, we were people who had opposed you. We made ourselves your enemy. We were by nature children of wrath and destined for wrath. And yet in your goodness and your mercy, you pitied us and gave us Christ that by hoping in him we might find a way to return to you. We're thankful for that. And we rejoice in your goodness this morning.